Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 348, The Athlete Mindset with Haley Meeks. Big Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Sam and Eddie. Boys, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Had a good weekend. Yeah, Sam. Yeah, pretty. Sam, good. you look sleepy. Cool. I, am I know our viewers sleepy. can't see, but I will. I will <laughs> tell the viewers that you do look sleepy. <laughs> I mean, it's a I've... it's a fairly it's a late night start for us. We are normally yeah. recording at this time, but this is normally towards the back end of our. So it's obviously we're balancing three time zones, and I mean I'm the latest, but. Yeah. Closely followed by London, but yeah, yeah I, I I go to bed earlier than Eddie, so not oh, that we're in the same place. That's true. For sure. yeah. <laughs> I go to bed way earlier than Eddie. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what sometimes, time are you in bed, Frank? Sometimes, Frank, you go to bed before me, and you're nine hours behind me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I would almost, I would almost bet we are close to fifty fifty the amount of times that happens. I, no, I mean, I'm usually 50. in bed by ten. No, but 50, 50 do that. I'm not, I'm not on average. I'm not 50% of the time going to bed after 7 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> like it happens on a weekend. It happened, it happened last night on a Sunday. Okay. Because I stayed up to oh, watch, wow. I watched the stayed up. Like, you know, I mean, just saying, swept the NFL picks, listeners of the podcast, 100% money line record so far this week. So stayed up to watch the Packers game. And uh, that meant, Went to a bar just to quiet, but went to a bar just to watch the game. And uh, yeah, I was home pretty late. Did have a um, an existential crisis almost, I would say, on my way home. If you uh-huh. recall, <laughs> okay. several, several weeks ago, if you remember, I went to the rugby match and I bought that rugby ball to kick over the stadium. And I left that rugby ball at the bar that I then ended up at last night and, and over the past I, I tell you say at the stadium because I kicked yeah. it out of the fucking stadium <laughs> it only just landed <laughs> but it, I don't know that was probably six weeks ago something like that six seven weeks ago and I'd left this the ball, the ball at the bar and last night I decided to take it home because I kept every time seeing it and being like I'll take it home this time and was never doing it and so I took it home and I was carrying it home I got out of my taxi and I was carrying the ball and I thought to myself, why am I carrying this ball? When on earth will I ever use this ball? Like in what situation now will I ever be good news? I've got a rugby ball in my apartment. And then I thought to myself, you know what? 10 years ago, I would have found use for it because I would have gone with my friends and played touch rugby or done something, you know? And then I thought, now I'm 34. That's never going to happen. And it was just a moment, it was, it was a little, you know, I, I don't think you necessarily want to do too much deep thinking at seven in the morning when you've probably had 25 beers, probably not, <laughs> probably not the best time to do a little bit of self-analysis, but yeah, it was, it was a little bit of a moment of life's passing was by. It, was it like a, did you kind of stop what you were doing and just stand there or no, did you like no. sit down? He, he, <laughs> 
He just like crumbled onto the under the middle of the street, <laughs> yeah. just crying just in the yeah, fetal just position. Started, just started raining. Just started raining at the same time. Like, no, I, I was just walking, but I did think to myself, I may as well just toss this rugby ball as I walk into my. Apartment. I was going to say, did you did you think shall I just punt this as hard as I can in a random direction and see what happens? And seeing if I could clear my building, that that meant I still had it. See, that would have been good. Just make small targets that are very attainable in that moment. <laughs> Now just like one, just like a roll of the dice, like going to Vegas and sticking it all on black. I would have been like, look, this is either over right here, right now. If I can't kick this ball over this building, I don't have it anymore. I can imagine you with poor, with, with like poor drunken inhibitions and you just punt it through the first floor. I want, I want to be clear. I was not drunk. I mean, I know I said I had 25, I had 25 beers over the space of, and maybe more, I don't know. But Three over hours. Three hours. Oh, that's insane. <laughs> it started at 2 p.m. and we're now at 7 a.m. So, you know, you have to factor in that's. Did you work? It was a Sunday. You mean today? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah today. today. <laughs> yeah. I had a 9 a.m. meeting today. Oh. I was on top form. We want did, video. did you still have the rugby ball in your hand for the meeting? <laughs> I was crying and holding it. Yeah. They were asking me what was going on. I just said, you don't want to know. And then I punted it at my screen. But yeah, now. Um, but no, I started, I mean, I guess this is the best way for us to transition onto the sports of the weekend. Started the day when the Formula One kicked off. So Well, I was going to say, just... we, should, we should probably also preface, we forgot to say in the beginning that we have an interview later on with Haley Meeks. So for those who are tuning in to listen to the interview, we'll, we will get to that shortly. Um, but there was some good sport to discuss first, I think. And then um, a really nice interview with, with Haley Meeks, who's a fellow podcaster. Yeah, host of the Snippet podcast. And obviously, if you're a first-time listener, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. You can follow us on YouTube. We don't do many video episodes, but they do occasionally happen. I think we'll probably do more in 2022. But also, you can follow us on social media channels. So search for The Big Chill Podcast on Instagram. Search for The Big Chill Podcast on Twitter. And you can interact with us through there, which I know most of you will be desperate to do. But yeah, no, things kicked off with the Formula One. I guess it's a... An interesting talking point for us. We spoke about it a bit last week in the build-up to the race, the, the decider situation where Verstappen and Hamilton were level on points going into the final race of the season, where if they finished level on points, Verstappen was going to win the Drivers' Championship, having won more Grand Prix over the course of the season. And it looked like for a long time, it was going to be a little bit of an anticlimax with Hamilton sort of a little bit of a procession, I would say, for the for ninety five percent of the race. Yeah, he, he was what before the controversy happened. What eleven seconds ahead? So before the final, yeah, before the final safety car, he was eleven seconds ahead with you know five laps to go, whatever it was. And even though he was running on aging tires, he seemed to be getting more out of his tires and his car than Verstappen was. So if anything, he was almost stretching that advantage whenever he wanted to. Now- now explain these last five laps to me as if okay. I'm a four-year-old, in, in so the way I'm, Michael Scott would say it. <laughs> so to run, to run through the race a little bit to give some more context. So Verstappen started on pole, having qualified faster. So then the question, and he started on soft tires, so the softest possible tires, which were supposed to be the quickest tires, but also last for the least amount of time. So the thought was that because he was going to start on faster tires, he might be able to get to a little bit of an advantage early on. But then the question would be then the tactics of when you pit comes into play and he was likely going to have to pit twice, whereas Hamilton was in a situation where he might only have to pit once. 
as it turned out, Hamilton overtook him on, well, instantly, right off. Yeah, literally the, almost instantly. <laughs> and so as that then changed the entire dynamic. Hamilton kind of continued to stretch his lead. Um, they both pitted at about the same time first off, and then they had something like 40-something 40, 40 laps to go on the tires that they were then on. Verstappen then pitted a second time during the first safety car. So there was one crash, and then they bring out... That was a virtual safety car, I believe, if memory serves. So basically, they have a virtual safety car, so everyone has to reduce their speed. You can't overtake, but you sort of... Positions remain the same, but everyone's going around the track more slowly. So if you then want to pit during that sort of moment, it's an optimal time to pit because you don't lose as much time on your rivals because everyone is going at a reduced speed. So your pit stop takes the same amount of time, but you don't lose as much time for everyone else who's remained on track. So for Stabin, now, pit now during, dur- during that, can you gain time during that? So say you're 11 seconds behind, can you get closer? Well, no, because you're you're all running at basically the same speed, yeah. fundamentally. It's, so the only way you gain or lose time is whether or not you pit during that moment. Okay. Gotcha. So and vers- obviously the advantage that comes from pitting after that, like fresher tires. So when the race does kind of resume, you're, you're in a much better position. Yeah. So Verstappen pitted during that moment. So instead of, I think at that Grand Prix, losing around 23 seconds through a pit stop, he only lost 11, I believe, something like that. So it's a significant advantage. And that kind of brought the race back into play at that moment. However, Hamilton then continued to stretch his lead. And then with, I think it was five laps to go, there was another crash. And this time, instead of a virtual safety car, they pulled, they brought out an actual safety car. So whereas the virtual safety car, the kind of, with a virtual safety car, the gaps remain basically the same because everyone's reduced going at a, the same speed, but you're kind of making your way round just at a reduced speed with an actual safety car that sort of compresses the entire race. So everyone gets drawn back together. And so yeah, that's why any, I was asking. So any okay. advantage that you did with the actual, cause then they're running at a sort of a hundred miles an hour. And so if you're at the front, you, you're still running more slowly than someone can go further behind. And so Verstappen was unable to close that gap. He then pitted again during that safety car Mercedes, I mean, people have been critical of Mercedes tactics and handling of that, of the fact that Hamilton was running on these very old tires. They were in the unfortunate situation leading that if they pitted, they were going to give up track position to Red Bull. And whereas Red Bull were in a position of as they were losing, they could kind of take the risk and they may as well try and do something because they were going to lose as it was. So you may as well put the faster tires on and hope that the situation sort of works out for you. So kind of in some respects, Mercedes at that point didn't have much choice, but you then had the safety car running. It was taking them several laps to clean the car that had crashed off of the track and to clean up all the debris. And at a certain moment in time, it looked likely that they were never going to actually race again, that they were going to finish the race with the safety car just so it's going to be a kind of, you know, non-racing. You Hugely anticlimactic again, yeah. just watching them slowly amble over the line. You just finish in the positions you were. Let's just kind of drive around for fun. I kind of have almost have a parade for the final few laps. And obviously you have Red Bull complaining about this. You have Mercedes very happy with this situation. And, and then 
the so the race director decided that this isn't how he was going to finish. Who makes this decision ultimately at the end of the day? So, what was it called? Mazi? Massey, yeah. So he's a race director. So fundamentally, it's like the stewards. If you think in horse racing, it's the same idea. They are these people who are know the rules and then they're assessing what the situation is. And some of it's a judgment call. Some of it is a the rules are hard and fast and there's no flexibility. This kind of fell into a, a gray area where there's a certain amount of discretion for the race director as to how he wanted this race to restart. You have one rule in the Formula One handbook that says if you are, when the safety car is then uh, leaving, you have two options. One is they aren't allowed to get back into their original order. So, you know, because obviously Verstappen is pitted. So even though he's technically second in the race, I think he was sixth at that moment in time. So he's got, you know, four cars between him and Hamilton, even though technically he's in second place. But because he's pitted, he's come out behind these people. So that's not going to change their finishing order, but it does change the order they're lined up in. You have a decision to make there as the race director, which is either he allows them to restart the race in that existing, in the order that they are currently in. Everyone who is, everyone who is kind of benefited during the uh, safety car has to allow people behind them to, you have to allow the lapped car to overtake you. So they you just kind of get out of the way. But obviously, it still takes time. If you're Verstappen, there's no way he could have beaten Hamilton on one lap if he also had to make his way around four other cars, even if they are allowing him to pass. Because there's only certain moments on the track where they can easily allow you. You, know, you can't just allow someone to overtake on a corner where there's not racing room for two of you. So... If they had start, restarted the race like that, Hamilton would have won. The other option they have is they can allow people to get back into the correct racing order. But to do that, they have to allow everyone in the race to get back into the correct racing order. And then they can only resume the race when a lap has been completed with everyone kind of restarting a fresh lap with everyone in the right order. And basically what ended up happening is they chose this middle ground where only Verstappen got back into the correct racing order. No one else did. And then they restarted the race with a lap to go, which meant that Verstappen on fresher tires was right on Hamilton. And in a situation where Hamilton fundamentally had very little chance, basically none of holding him off on fresh tires versus old tires. Now, now, is there precedent for this decision or is this a very controversial way to set up the last lap? It, it, it's a super controversial decision. I'm not the best person of you to ask on, you know, Formula One history and racing precedents. It doesn't appear that they were able to point to any similar decisions. I think it was not the right way to end. I think everyone had, for the most part, everyone agrees. It was not, it was a controversial end, even if you think that Verstappen was the deserved winner. And I think there were two options. They either needed to just allow the safety car to finish the race, anti-climax, but it is what it is. Hamilton had deserved to win that race based on how he actually handled himself over the course of the, you know, 95% of the race itself. The alternative, what they could have done is they could have had a red flag, had everyone pit, everyone gets back into racing order. Everyone has the chance to put on fresh tires. So there's no strategic advantage there. They then go back out on track and they do a one lap race fundamentally from that moment. They restart and they just do one lap, which 
would have still taken away a significant amount of Hamilton's advantage, but it would have at least allowed Mercedes to not complain that they had been tactically kind of screwed over by the stewards' decisions, which, you know, they basically, the steward handed the race to Verstappen with the, well, the race director with the decision that they took. Um, I just think, you know, as someone, I'm sure there's Formula One experts out there listening to this. I've probably not done a perfect job of explaining all of that. But certainly as someone who is not a sort of motorhead who loves every aspect of Formula One but watches races, this seemed like a poor end to a season that had been so much better than the final, you know, sort of result showed. It also seemed like in a moment where a lot more people were paying attention to Formula One, it's a bad look for the sport because it does look a little bit as if whether or not some people will say it's fixed. I think that's probably unfair, but it's definitely poor, you know, officiating, let's say. And it's the same if you had the World Cup final and it ends with a controversial refereeing decision. It's just not a great example of what the sport stands for. And I think yeah. that's basically what's happened with Formula One. Yeah. It, it was definitely on, on the high stage because even here where the race was starting at six, there was a significant amount of people I saw that were, they had bars were open up early to watch it or they were having parties at their own house, uh, you know, to watch the final. And at six, to, it was like, what, six to 8 a.m. here. So it's yeah. super early. It was it was definitely on, on the stage, you know, in the spotlight for sure. Um, I've yeah. seen more people post about it that I've probably never watched a Formula One race in their life, yeah. you know, post about that watching and, it. So, And that's a bad introduction to the sport. It's great, right? Formula One has had a big boom as a result of the the, the television series following, you know, following sure. it. This is going to be a great second season for that show. I mean, they couldn't have scripted it better. <laughs> so from that perspective, and if you want to then be a real cynic or a skeptic, maybe that's the, they did it for the show who they, knows they did it for you know what i mean but I, I i think it was on it i think it was honest mismanagement from someone trying to make a trying to have the race finish with a race and not a parade and i think making could have made but you know people really put it on the spot there's not that much time to make a decision and you know and so obviously you now have mercedes appealing their initial appeals have been rejected they're still kind of They've retained this right to appeal that they have, I think, 74 hours or 72 hours or whatever it is to do, which coincides with Thursday when the actual presentations will be made of the driver's champions, constructor championship and stuff. Mercedes have basically, I think, at this point accepted their lot and have also decided that they're not going to continue to push this further because they would have had cer certain options available to them with the court of arbitration if they really wanted to pursue a you know, long and tedious legal case. It seems like they have understood that their chances of turning all of this around are slim to none. And on top of it, they're just dragging the sport through the mud in the process. So, and I guess for me too, as someone who didn't really care what the outcome was, the disappointment was I thought Hamilton handled himself tremendously well in the aftermath in the sense that yeah. he went to Verstappen and congratulated him. And he was very magnanimous in everything that he said on you know, the podium and his, in his interviews. I was a little bit disappointed in Verstappen, I, where Verstappen kind of came across more of he felt like he deserved to win, and that yes, yeah. he got lucky, but this was luck that he'd earned. And yeah, I think the shame from Verstappen's perspective is if he had just said, "Look, I think I deserve to win over the course of the season. This was a hard-fought battle. Very unlucky for Lewis Hamilton. I am happy to win, but I didn't want to win this way." And I think if you just make that statement, 
yeah, he would have come just, across much better. Just just tackle a very obvious elephant in the room, right? That this wasn't a normal ending to what was a very good thing. But when when you look at the fallout for everything to do with it, it feels like there's going to be changes, right? Because the idea is that he didn't apply the FIA rule properly to the scenario. Like there is a scripted way of doing this and it wasn't applied. Yes and no. So there is one the thing because there's two dimensions. There's two to, rules. So there's one rule that basically says this is how you're supposed to do it. And then there's a secondary rule, which takes precedence, which basically says the race director has the discretionary powers to apply these rules as he sees fit. So yeah. which at which point, why have the rules? If you're basically going to empower the race director to, hey, come up with a solution that you think wants. works, <laughs> then why put the, put the rules together in the first place? You know, don't, don't write out a law and say, this is, hey, you can only drive 60 miles an hour unless you think 70 miles an hour is better. You know, like, yeah. there's, there's no, no it, point it, to that. It, it, yeah, it's kind of true. And like you say, all the while the race is going on, it's not like it's stuck and the, the cars have stopped or anything like that. It, it's just... It looks like there's going to be change, though, because of it. A lot of the FIA are quiet. A lot of the kind of senior people within most teams came out and said it's a bit odd. Most of the drivers came out and said it's a bit odd. Obviously, now it's come out with Hamilton's radio that he said he, it was manipulated. There almost feels like something will change because of this. The law will become more ironclad or more obvious. It, it does feel like there's a wave of public opinion that, yeah, this was kind of dumb. Yeah, I mean, Even look, there's, it was okay. there's such an easy solution to this, which is something that was kind of discussed anyway after the last race, which is maybe people shouldn't be allowed to touch their cars or change their tires during yellow flags or red flags. And if you just have that, then you can say, look, if you're leading and a yellow flag happens or a red flag happens, you might lose your gap, but you don't get put into a situation where it throws your tactics out the window. I think that's probably the easiest solution is just say, look, you can only change your tires if you pit during sort of open racing period. And aside from that, if there's a yellow flag or a red flag, you can't, you can't. And, and the idea is you can only then go into the pits and have something fixed on your car. If the reason why you're, it's being fixed is the incident that caused the yellow flag. So that would be different if Verstappen had crashed. And so he has to Just go in three wheels. Yeah. He has to go into the pit to get some work done. That's different. But, you know, to say that you get to benefit from someone else crashing and people have tried to come up with all these analogies for other sports. You know, I know Gary Lineker has had a bit of backlash on Twitter. You know, a lot of people are saying this is a little bit like being three nil up in the world cup final. And then the referee turns around and says, next goal wins. You know, there's, and and those aren't true analogies because obviously yellow flags and red flags are part of racing and hamilton has benefited from them over the course of this season so it's very easy when this is the what seems like the determining factor to forget while each one of these drivers has benefited from somewhat controversial decisions at different moments over the course of the season but uh, it's just not a, it's a black eye for the sport for, yeah. for sure yeah but it's also a precedent thing right because um wasn't there a race like a year ago or two years ago same race director had come out and said a uh, similar scenario with uh, the kind of safety car period and um massey or Mazi came out and said there's a requirement in the sporting regulations to wave all the lap cars past so 
the problem is there the inconsistency of the application, right? Which is what people in soccer were so annoyed about with things like VAR, yeah. um, the offside rules. It's about, it, look, if you're going to do it, be consistent in how you apply it, even if you disagree. It feels like the moment was a bit too big for him. I mean, that with the utmost respect, but it feels like he was in a situation where he wanted the sport to have this moment in the sun where we get this dramatic finish to a season. The, the eyes of the world are upon us and let's not have this finish with us following a Aston Martin at 100 miles an hour around the track. And I can understand that. You're, you're, you as the person who's sort of in charge of the sport in that moment is trying to deliver the best, you know, the most interesting outcome. But in doing so, in the heat of the moment, he's probably made the wrong decision. And there would have been a better way to try and deliver that final exciting lap that would have been less controversial and where there could have been fewer complaints. And I mean, I would imagine, I think he has to go just because over the course of the season, both Red Bull and Mercedes feel like he has taken, you know, they both think that he's biased, but just in different ways. So you can't really have a situation where the two dominant teams both think they're being that the the people in charge are corrupt and against them. So I think probably you need to be in a fresh face and a clean slate for next season and just clear up some of the ambiguities that have led to controversial decisions that could you could just have a hard and fast rule that there's no objectivity from a race director's perspective. Yeah, and and just I guess wrapping up this topic, you mentioned that Lewis Hamilton kind of took it in stride and, and it, it, he did look genuine and going over and congratulating, but I will say it was a piss poor effort on his part for the champagne celebration spray. I don't know if you saw him on the podium, but when, when it came time to spray Verstappen, he kind of just gave like the bottle one shake and pointed and it was just like dripping out of the champagne bottle. <laughs> to be fair, if it had, been, if it had been me, I probably would have just thrown the champagne bottle at him. Yeah, so. he would have just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, but, you know, it's, and look, there's, there's good and bad for the sport. It's bad in the sense that it does seem like a bad decision. It's good for the sport. We're talking about it. Everyone's talking about it. I mean, it's, yeah, we're talking it's about it. 24 hour news coverage. Almost people are following the appeals, trying to see what will happen. People are analyzing, you know, Mercedes have made basically no public comments. Lewis Hamilton hasn't spoken publicly since his initial post-race interviews. So, you know, it's drama that the sport, you could say desperately needs in terms of getting extra viewers and attention, but it's it's not a great look. It's it's not the way you want to get attention. Even if, you know, to bring out the cliche, you know, no publicity is bad publicity, probably the case here, but you could have better publicity. Yeah, I guess following up from this, another uh, oopsie moment came in the draw for the UEFA Champions League where oh, yeah. they incorrectly put the teams in in the diff, in the wrong pools and had an incorrect draw. And we don't have to touch on it too much cuz obviously still it's only the round of 16 so you're still far off from, you know, from f- semis and finals. But it was interesting that there were a few teams that definitely got screwed in the oh, second Real draw. Madrid. Yeah, Real Madrid <laughs> initially playing Benfica but then now playing PSG but then also Liverpool I mean, Liverpool was initially going to face Salzburg, and now they're facing Inter. I mean, that's a huge change, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that the counter to that is, and I can understand people being disappointed, and, and, and if the team I supported had been involved in this, you'd probably be a bit peeved. 
but fundamentally if you're going to win the champions league right you've got to beat good teams along the way and it's just we had this discussion throughout the euros you know with england's path to the final and whether or not you want to tactically choose whether you finish first or second to try and get yourself an easier path if you if you have aspirations of winning the tournament then you have you have to believe you can beat everyone in it so yes a downer for real madrid to suddenly have to play psg but if real madrid think they can win the tournament then they have to think they're going to be able to play and beat psg at some point in the season so you got to do it now sucks a little bit but i i think it's it's worse for smaller teams who probably think that they have very little chance of going through who may have lost more interesting ties in the process you know if you're benfica getting to play real madrid is a dream tie you've got the kind of portuguese spanish rivalry and you know it's a big name it's one of the biggest obviously clubs in world football so in a sense although you might get an easier path through a redraw you might think to yourself we would have rather had the you know the tough opponents but the ones that were going to really bring in more eyes for us worth noting while speaking about the uh european cup draws it's led to a little bit of a trend on twitter where people have been commenting on the fact that in english people tend to refer to the team sporting as sporting lisbon this has been clearly a pet peeve of Derek Ray, former guest of the podcast, friend of the podcast, ESPN commentator, FIFA video game commentator, who has said the club is not sporting uh, Lisbon. It's no part of their name. And that is the equivalent of calling, referring to Arsenal as Arsenal London. There's just no reason to throw their city location into their name. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) It's a fair point. So for anyone out there listening, if you're consistently saying Sporting Lisbon, not the team name, just call what them is, Sporting. But what is, because uh, it's like Sporting CP, isn't it? Or it's something? Sporting, what? I think it's Sporting Club de Portugal, I think, is their official yeah. name. I'm, I'm going to have to contact uh, MGM and tell them that when I bet on them, I'm betting on the wrong team because they have Sporting Lisbon as the, the pick there. They are incorrect. So if I ever lost on that, I could yeah. say I didn't bet Sporting Lisbon. I bet Sporting CP. I don't know what the fuck this team is. Sporting Lisbon is an under-17 girls team, and they won 9-0 this week, so I won. <laughs> Unfortunately, that was not my one loss. They they came through, I think, 4-0. <laughs> and so from then, from that little bit of drama, I guess we move on to a less dramatic NFL weekend where for the most part, I think results went as expected. And Frank's shaking his head because obviously maybe not quite as he expected. But aside from, I think the late games threw up a little bit more action. The early games, most of them were pretty much over with a quarter to go. I mean, teams kind of wiped the floor with, we, we, we came into this week, right, saying there were four games you didn't want to see a second of. And there were four games or five games that you really didn't need to see a second of. Uh, late on, there was a little bit of drama with the Bengals, Sam's Bengals, mounting a good comeback against my Niners. Against but, Eddie's Niners. <laughs> but ultimately ultimately losing in overtime. And also the Bills putting together an impressive comeback against the Bucks, but then also ultimately losing in overtime. Uh, I think those are the only two games. Killer. Yeah, a few games. A <laughs> few games with like... Absolutely uh, killer. <laughs> a few games with early blowouts, right? You know, the Browns, obviously, with the had the Ravens come back. Washington against Dallas, even though that game looks much closer than it actually was. 
Um, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the Dallas part, game was weird because the Dallas game was over and then all of a sudden, weird. and then all of a sudden it wasn't over. It was so strange. The yeah. end of it, right. With the, uh, kind of recovery and the fumble when the interception, like, honestly, at one point you did think with that two point fail conversion, obviously they missed the point after as well. You did think if they were going to get it, that was going to be the win with yeah. the kind of the amount of misses, but yeah, obviously and, and, the, and actually Dallas the defense stepped up. The same for the Browns, who looked like they had that game in total control, and then and Lamar Jackson out too. Yeah, <laughs> but but you know, like with five minutes to go, we thought, okay, the Browns are there's no way they're losing. Then all of a sudden, they're only two points up, and then all of a sudden, they have one of the worst onside kick. <laughs> I mean, the guy just let the ball hit him. I've never seen anything quite like it. I don't know. You put people in your hands team. He he was obviously instructed there that he was just there to block and decided that I'm going to block and I'm not going to even look at where the ball is. I mean, it's just unbelievable that you would just, your Bad. sole focus would be on players and not, there is an object coming towards me. And if it hits me, then we're in trouble. Now, now Eddie, can we address that that game was an example of why you go for the two-point conversion early and don't hold off until the end. Yeah, I mean, I this think is... that was a good example, oh, right? I mean, I like, mean, it, yeah. you can make the case, but that that was one of the times where he and he got a lot of heat for it. They said, "Why did you go for the two on that first touchdown and not play to be down eight? And he said, "For like, it was weird that they were asking him that when the exact scenario of why you do it played out, because that way you know exactly what you need. So when you get the ball back, you know how quickly you need to score." To, if you need to get the ball back or not, which yeah. is what happened. They scored relatively quickly, had enough time left to do an onside kick, recovered the onside kick, and had they been able to move the ball maybe 20 yards, I mean, yeah, you, you, got, know, you give Tucker a shot. Yeah, you've got Justin you Tucker. You give Tucker a shot. At, at that moment, it suddenly went from a game that looked like it was done and dusted to suddenly the Ravens were favorites. Because, I mean, yeah, you're right. It was 15, even 15 yards. They give Justin Tucker a probably unrealistic but realistic attempt. If you see what I mean, like he gets to have a go and you think maybe he hits it, but there's a 10% chance, but it's Justin Tucker. So who knows? But yeah. And then the late games, I think two teams who didn't defend a lead well in the Niners and the Bucks, both of those games should have been comfortably over in the fourth quarter. Uh, I'll, I'll speak from a Niners perspective. I thought it was a pretty good performance. I mean, Kittle who now seems to be totally healthy is just an absolute beast. Yeah. I mean, he might be, if they make the playoffs, it's literally I, Kittle and Samuel yeah. are 98% of the reason they're making the playoffs. Yeah. Garoppolo is just a vessel to get them the ball at this point. <laughs> but I will say, and I've been a big Jimmy G critic and he was not totally convincing over the course of that game. We were also watching in the bar. I turned to my friend furlong at one moment when they were driving down the field and I was like, Jim Garoppolo has one horrific throw for a pick in him and he should have thrown a pick and then got dropped. Oh my God. He got so lucky on that. But, that was so lucky. But I will say I feel a little bit better about him overall because fundamentally he did put together two game winning drives. Now, not his fault that a field goal was missed that you should be getting. And then to come up with a game winning drive, down three and, and work your way down for an actual touchdown to win the game. In some respects, I feel a little bit better about him. But, I mean, the Niners look good to me. I, it's a little bit confusing as to what yeah. the difference was between this week and, and last week against the Seahawks. 
who, but they look good. Yeah, it was it was it was interesting. I mean, like obviously, special teams wise, I think the Bengals messed up a lot. Obviously, the 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 kind of punts that they had, where they kind of. Um, fumbled and the Niners recovered I think that went for 10 points so it's not to say that the Bengals were better than the Niners just because of like giving away 10 points on something that's your own problem but I I think they only rushed for about 100 yards so the Niners kept them there I I, I think it was just like it was kind of a it was a good tactical game and it was closer just in all the stats but I did feel like the 49ers were just much better especially in the first half um yeah yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say from a non-Bengals and non-Niners supporter, I think it was a good win by the Niners, and it's a tough loss as a bank as like a Bengals team because that's that's a game where you did play well enough to win and you just didn't win. You know, a, a few lucky bounces and it's it's the other way. I mean, Burrow had a great game. You look at that last drive to tie it. That was a phenomenal drive. I mean, he hit two nice passes, the one on the left side, and then that touchdown to Chase. Two great passes, led a great drive to, you know, get them in the overtime when you didn't think they were gonna. In fact, I think, like, you know, I thought they were out of it going into the fourth quarter, and he had two nice touchdown drives there. But it's it's an unfortunate loss for them, and it is really unfortunate because that division is so wide open that that could be the game. Oh you go back and you say, had we been eight and five going into week, what, 14 or 15 now, we're in a much better position. Whereas now they're kind of on the bottom trying to scrape back up. Well, it's playing to the Browns now, isn't it? One win and all of a sudden, you know, the Browns, I think the Browns, yeah, I think the Browns win that division now. It's an insane, uh, depending on, attrition. well, de- it's just de- depending on Lamar, depending on Lamar Jackson's health status, which I mean, he was, has this mysterious illness then he has the ankle injury over the course of that game he just doesn't look right anyway at the moment I mean depending on that I think the Browns should now be favorites to win that division based on the schedule that they have compared with the schedule that the other teams in the in in the AFC North have I, I think that's actually two interesting talking points kind of looking at playoff perspectives what are the chances I mean the Bills looked as if they had the AFC East sewn up a few weeks ago they could miss the playoffs now. It's yeah, a very for if, sure. If if they lose the against the Patriots, uh, I mean, they could in an AFC where there are a number of teams now looking to be over five hundred. So if you don't win your division, you're actually going to need to be, you know, like. Whereas I think in the NFC, you're going to be able to scrape in with nine and eight. I don't think nine and eight is going to be good enough in the AFC, and so they could easily be out of this and i actually think even the ravens depending on what the situation is with lamar jackson even the ravens could end up missing the playoffs yeah and then you flip the the afc and go to the top and we now have the chance that the team we debated whether they would even make the playoffs may now be the number one seed again in the chiefs if they keep playing the way they're playing i mean they're one they're tied in record but third third right now in tiebreakers but with four games left. I mean, the tiebreakers aren't going to matter as much and they could conceivably be the number one seed when going into what was that week seven or eight. A lot of people questioned whether they even make the playoffs. 
I so mean, that's kind of crazy too. We question them, right? And and yeah, no, I mean, you questioned them. I never, I never lost faith. Never lost faith. I, I think, I think probably, oh yeah, sure. I think, I think there's a good chance they do end up in the number one seed, and and all of a sudden we can go into the playoffs where they are favorites to win the Super Bowl. I mean, I, I think the big issue here is that the Packers do look pretty good. I mean, they talking of teams where special teams went against them yesterday. The special teams went against the the Packers yesterday and on top of it just not to be dismissive of big plays but you kind of have games where there are these fluky big plays that are not reflective of the overall trend and kind of the Bears were breaking them off whereas most of the time they were struggling to put things together and I mean that Packers offense just looks like a juggernaut yeah when they really need to put things together they put things together Speaking of that, well, it's kind of speaking of the seedings going in with the Bills, was it more that the Bucks did the Bucks come out worse from that as well with the the way the way they almost gave up that game? Not for me, because I think the f- the first three quarters they looked so good. Like my bigger takeaway from that is how good they looked when everything was working right, and it it just brings back memories of what they did last year, which is as they get towards the playoffs and if they're healthy, then everything it's a team full of experience. And when they need to put in good performances, they can do it on a different level to a lot of teams in the NFL. And I think those first three quarters prove that the bills get a bit of credit for the way they were able to come back. The bucks also could have done a better job of not allowing the bills to be in a situation to come back, but, and Hey, Frank, it raised an interesting question when we were in the bar I said we'd had the discussion on the podcast of are there moments in overtime where you would rather kick off than receive? I felt like in that Bills Bucks game, I was as someone who had reasons to want the Bucks to win. I was very happy when the Bills were getting the ball first because I didn't feel like there was that much of a risk that they were going to drive down and score a touchdown. Oh, listen. <laughs> As someone who had the Bills plus three and a half, when I saw the Bills were getting the ball first, I was ecstatic because I figured best case, they drive down the field and score. Worst case, they get stuffed, punt it. Brady methodically drives down the field, gets to the 10 yard line and kicks their chip shot. And I'm fine. The scenario that I knew would play out, which I 100% knew would play out, was Brady gets the ball and throws a freaking 40-yard touchdown well, pass or whatever it was, I mean, and I lose. That's a different <laughs> – you're, descri- you're describing a different scenario, which is the idea of having a handicap where, yes, this is much, much better for if you have plus three and a half points to be in, in a situation where the other team – because the other thing you also are failing to kind of think of too is if the Bills had scored a field goal, and then the Buccaneers had driven down and won with a touchdown. Six, they don't kick the extra point. They don't point. kiss the exactly. extra point. So you, you still win. We discussed that at, at the bar when I was watching it as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, but, and my argument every time was, it doesn't matter, guys, because the Bucs are just going to score and win by six. <laughs> so let's then deal with your range of emotions. I was very happy to see the Bills get the ball. I thought this Bucks defense is going to step up. It's going to be a three and out. And I did think they'll get in range to kick a field goal. But... but I, I said all of this, and then there was the three and out, well, or they punted. I kind of walked that back a little bit because the punt was excellent. And then suddenly they had the Bucks amazing on their own, <laughs> own six-yard line. And I said, oh, maybe I take back what I said because now if the Bucks, the Bucks are almost in four-down territory because they can't afford to punt. You can't punt back from within your own 30 because then you're then putting the other team in nearly potential field goal range 
to then kick the game winner. So you're you're putting them under a lot of pressure to at first just get a little kind of a little bit of territory so you can at least afford to punt. But I mean, looking cool for Tom Brady, seven hundredth touchdown pass on a game winning, t- you know, touchdown. Again, he kind of seems to write his own scripts a little bit at times, and also he became the NFL all time passing leader in terms of number of completions. I think yesterday took that record away from Drew Brees. Fortunately, <laughs> we don't have to deal with that 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 annoying back and forth. Yeah, I um, mean, right. another another good stat about that one. So obviously. 359 games, 22 seasons. How many times has that been his... Uh, how many times has he thrown a, um, a... What do you call it? An overtime touchdown. Oh. I'll say... How many games did he say? 300 and... 359 career games spanning 22 seasons. I'll say... 700 touchdown I th- passes. I think it's going to be less than you think. Part of me wants to say that's the first time ever. I'm going to say it's the first time ever. Right? Third time. I mean, that's pretty incredible as two. <laughs> okay. So he did it. Obviously, this one. And the last time he did it was 2003 against the Dolphins. I'm glad that wasn't like a week ago and I just couldn't remember. So <laughs> yes, two two it was weeks. long enough ago that I, I don't have to question my memory. But... Um, yeah, I, it was, you know, it was kind of uneventful. I mean, to a certain extent, the biggest test of the end of the weekend is tonight and that in the, or what will now be yesterday for listeners, but in the Cardinals Rams game, I think that's the, you had the two standout games. Well, I actually think three standout games, the Bengals Niners was an interesting test for two teams kind of on the cusp. Then you had the Bucks and the Bills is an interesting test of two teams that consider themselves to be Super Bowl contenders. And then you have the interesting test of a similar way with the Rams and the Cardinals. In some respects, a lot of parallels between the Rams and the Cardinals and the Bucks and the Bills and that you have one team I think most people trust and you kind of know what they are. And then the other team in slight free fall and questions as to are they really good or not. Now, actually, I wanted to go back real quick to the Bills because <laughs> – Many people may not think it's a talking point, but I I do because we go through the analytics all the time, right? The Bills had the ball third and two at Tampa Bay seven, down three points. First off, they did the my most hated play in the NFL, the end zone fade. I if they could eliminate one play in the NFL and make it illegal to do, it would be the end zone fade. One. It sucks because it never goes your way and they never catch it. And two, whenever you think it's a pass interference and you're going to get the call, you never get it. Like it was a questionable one. You you easily could have seen a flag on that play, but they didn't throw it, which I think was the right time. But I've seen more often than not a flag on that. But you then get to fourth and two at the Tampa Bay seven with 22 seconds left. They chose to kick the field goal and take it into overtime. There was not much discussion as to whether that was the right move and i'm not saying this in hindsight at the time i honestly said i would have gone for it now are you just because is this is this better frank not 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 from a financial standpoint no not from a financial standpoint at all the bills plus three and a half and it's like do you know what them failing on a fourth down attempt is perfect for me or making it and it's over anyway So, yeah, but no, it was not. I think that 
I just think I don't want to go into overtime, especially against Tom Brady. I don't trust that. But I mean, why? He's only ever thrown two. Uh, up to that moment, he's only ever thrown one touchdown one. in overtime. So true. I, maybe, but you've got two yards to go, and you're on the seven yard line. The, the risk, I mean, what was the? I, I can't even remember. Did they have timeouts left at this point? 22 seconds, no timeouts. So if you got a first down, you spike it. You spike it, for sure. You, you do, but you... It's not hard to run three yards. We saw... You know, like... you're all- Frank, Thursday night football, we saw how this can go horribly wrong. So... Yeah, but they were running down the field. No, I know, but- At this point, if if you only need two yards, your line's right there. They just line up real quick. I- you, you can easily spike it and still have 10 seconds, enough to run one or two more points. I think it's the right decision. I think, oddly enough, I actually think the fact that they're on the seven-yard line, I actually think if they'd been on, say, the 30-yard line, then you go for it. And that's not because the field goal is no longer just a chip shot that you make 99.99% of the time, more because of the fact that it gives you more options in terms of the plays you can call. From the seven-yard line, you're kind of limited in what you can do. You've not got a lot of room to work with. Your playbook gets cut down significantly. And... You have a good mobile QB, though. You do. Right? I mean, that's another plus. He can roll them out. But that's bold. Because once you start getting your quarterback to roll out in a game-deciding scenario where if someone makes a good play and tackles in the backfield, it's it's game over. And he's he's mobile, but he's not Lamar Jackson. I Hey, which I also want to say, the Ravens, I think – Jim, I think uh, Jim Harbaugh. I think Jim Harbaugh probably listens to this podcast and then sends messages to his brother. But he, I hope you notice on their final two point conversion attempt at the end of that Browns game, they rolled the quarterback out to the right on on the attempt. Now it, yeah. it ended with an interception, <laughs> so it didn't <laughs> it didn't work out that well. But I'm glad to know that the Harbaugh's are taking tips from from the Big Show podcast. Yeah. Now, maybe one final note before we then move on to this interview. There's some Vasilla stories from last night, which I won't make it onto this episode. However, he was reveling a little bit in the idea that he is becoming semi-famous through the podcast. He looks forward to the idea of one day going to London and being, I guess, recognized, although I don't know how he's going to be recognized as someone who doesn't take part in the podcast <laughs> and it's an audio podcast. Audio <laughs> yeah. podcast. Wait, so it's just going to be someone audio on. podcast. It's an audio podcast that he doesn't even speak on. <laughs> you carry yourself in the way of a character I hear described on a podcast I listen to. But he, I did like that he then said, um, he gave us a nickname. And now it's now, uh, awfully, it's now escaping me. Well, 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 you try and think of it, I'll, for all our new listeners, Vasilis is a close friend of ours who often finds himself in very unique situations in the nightlife of Paris and no. has no shame in allowing us to tell these stories. So he's, he's, been, he's been mentioned quite a few times and he has some interesting stories. So if, if you're a new listener, you will hear Vasilis stories down the line for sure. <laughs> oh. Yeah, he'll, he'll, come, he'll come up again. He called us the Chill Boys. Oh. We're the Chill Boys? <laughs> We're the chill boys. That's what he referred to. He was like the chill boys. And he was like, oh, it's cool to be part of the chill boys. It's, it touches too close to being the proud boys. I don't know if I like it. <laughs> yeah, can we, 
I don't know, but you know, sometimes we are looking for the ways to get this podcast to grow more. Maybe forming an alt right boys club could be yeah, like a posse. Yeah. No, no, an alt right boys band. And on that note, flat as though it may be coming from the Chill Boys future number one hit, should we now transition to our interview with Haley Meeks? Welcome back. We are now delighted to be joined by this week's guest, Haley Meeks, who is the host of the Snipbit podcast. Haley, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me. Frank, Sam, it's always, it's always interesting when we go for the interviews because what we've done is we're going to pre-record the, entry, the, sort of, the, the preamble to the interview before we start going. So it's a kind of cold opening for all of us, even though the listeners will have heard sort of 30 minutes of conversation before this. But uh, a little bit of listener insight then into how all of this works. But Sam and Frank, how are you two doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm kind of wondering how Haley feels on the other side of the mic this time, being the, the interviewee. <laughs> it's a weird experience. It's a weird experience, but it's okay. I'm good with it. <laughs> but I guess that's a good jumping off point. Um, sort of, We've listened to some of your episodes of the Snippet podcast. Obviously, I became aware of you through the podcast, but I guess it'd be great for our listeners who, who will have never come across it before just to give a quick explanation of of what it is, you know, what the podcast does and, and, and who you speak to and, and that sort of thing? Well, the aim of the podcast was to inspire young people predominantly and to prove that you can be successful in your chosen field, no matter what your background or start in life. And it started off by a conversation I had with my stepdaughter and she was talking to me and she said, so many of my friends at school think that they won't achieve anything because they come from this area or they come from a broken home or they don't have money. And I kind of wanted to debunk the myth in essence. And so what I did was I started with what I knew and I wanted to try and get as many successful people in business, in sport and celebrity to come on and, and basically give us the secrets of their success. Um, to understand whether they felt that it was due to a growth mindset, what in their background had happened, what had inspired them, what were their challenges, and, and just try to get an understanding of were there commonalities between each of these different people, the different sports people and business people, that we could go, right, that's the skill set we need, or that's the knowledge we need, or that's who we need to be as people to be successful and that was really how it started out and um, I was very very lucky I just started approaching people and I started approaching various different sports people so um, as you know I've got a number of Olympic champions um, I've got people who've played for their country or driven for their country or hit a cricket ball for their country, as well as multi-millionaire business people. I've got a couple of actresses on there. So it's been a really good widespread, and it, it's been really a fascinating insight into to what success actually is. Do you see then a lot of difference in the mindset between, say, comparing athletes with business people? And I mean, I guess from an outsider's perspective, we mostly talk about sports. I guess the thing people might come into it kind of thinking that a successful athlete, whilst they'll have to have a particular mindset, obviously a lot of it comes down to physical gifts that they may or may not have. 
but do you see anything that links them in terms of the mental approach to what you're seeing with actors or actresses or, or business people? I think there is a lot of commonalities. I think the biggest thing for me that I've noticed is about resilience. And it's not about if things go wrong, it's how they overcome those challenges. And it's about positive self-talk. It's about, um, so for example, let me, let me give you an example from one of my episodes. Um, we had Daly Thompson, double Olympic champion at decathlon. And uh, I remember him saying to me that in 1984, when he was in Los Angeles at the Olympic Games, he was expected to win. He was kind of nailed on. Daly's going to bring it home for the UK. And there's like, you imagine there's billions of people watching worldwide. He's the, the weight of the UK nation is on him. And for anyone who doesn't know, the, the decathlon is 10 sports. So you have to do 10 events and you get a cumulative score for how fast you run, how high you jump or how far you jump or throw things. And he'd got to the discus. And the discus normally was a pretty good event for him. And on this day, he'd thrown two really bad throws. And he knew that if he threw a third bad throw, that was it. Olympics done. You know, his legacy would be the guy who lost the Olympic title as opposed to the guy that won the Olympic title. So I remember saying to him, so, so what did you do? What did you do? You know, I mean, you're sitting there, you've got the pressure of the stadium, you've got the pressure of the world on your shoulder. So what did you do? And he said to me, he said, I just told myself that I've thrown the discus thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And I've never thrown three bad shots in a row. He said, I've just not done it. And he said, and I wasn't going to do it then. And for those of you who don't know the rest of the story, I'll just give you the spoiler if you like. He threw the discus and he threw a personal best. He won the Olympic title and he won the world record and he still holds the British record for decathlon. And it was just that kind of that insight into, you know, instead of looking at it as this is the worst challenge of my life and, and, and getting himself stressed, he was all about the solution. It was all about the mindset. It was all about, and, and I've seen that in so many of the others. You know, if I talk to somebody like Martin O'Fire, who is a British rugby player, he was being given racist chance by his own fans. I mean, you know, we find that really hard to believe in 2021 in the UK that that would have happened, but it did. And he said it was like his fuel. It motivated him to score more tries because he wanted to stand there with his chest out and go, see? And, you know, we had Tani Gray Thompson on. And for those of you who don't know, she's a Paralympian. She's an incredibly successful Paralympian. And when she was a child her parents had to get the law changed in Wales so she could go to a mainstream school because they associated physical disability with mental disability. And this is a lady who's literally got, I think it's about nine honorary doctorates. She's now Baroness Tanny Gray Thompson and she sits in the House of Lords and, you know, she's probably one of the most influential people in her sport. 
and it was that resilience that she'd got from the beginning that kind of that positive mindset that had got her to that place and, and with all of them there was that commonality and so when I talked to a business person so for example I had Neville Wright on and he had gone to school he'd been dyslexic he had ADHD he was seen as a, a failure in the world's terms in terms of his education and yet this is a man that turned 37p into a hundred million pound business because he kept going, he kept believing in himself and putting in the hard yards. So the commonalities were there. It's that hard work, it's that ethos, that ethic and that and the resilience. You um so you mentioned a lot of like very famous people there, like Daley Thompson was famous in the eighties. I I saw some other people you've uh, spoken with like Andrew Strauss, obviously very relevant, um, kind of cricketer in the early 2000s. Uh, well, yeah. And then, um, you know, uh, Brownlee as well, who's obviously still very relevant today. Have you have you found the people that you've interviewed, obviously many decades of experience, as you say, they grew up in certain times. Have you noticed any change in like kind of mindsets of people that were maybe uh, had their time in the 80s or the 90s or the noughties or do you find that the consistencies of how you become successful have always stayed kind of true throughout? I think the basic principles haven't changed. I think now for sporting stars now that there's a, a lot of a different level of support. A lot of the sports stars then were amateurs, if, if you like, in terms of their status. They didn't get the money and the all of the, the support network, the physios and the nutritionists and all of this. So they had to do a lot more themselves. So they had to be a lot more self-motivated. But at the end of the day, if you're Alistair Brownlee and you've still got to do your triathlon, you're still going to be feeling the pain whichever decade you're 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 in there if that if that makes sense and it's like with somebody like Bianca Walkden for example she was in the Olympics and took taekwondo she's still got to put in those hard yards and there's still um a culture where you don't start to to see the rewards of your labor until you start to become successful so they have to have that mindset they have to have that self-belief Kind of going along that, we, we've talked to a lot of different people about being an athlete in the modern era, and you kind of touched upon it where, you know, you have so much opportunity with things like physio and training and just the ability to become a better athlete has improved. But at the same time, you have so much more pressures from social media and these instant reactions. And, um, you know, if you don't perform on one day, the next day you're bashed on Twitter and things like that. Have you ever talked to a lot of the people that you interview and, and asked them how they would have approached that had they been competing now or would they have survived, things like that? I think is always interesting. I, I, think it's, I think it's really an interesting thing. There's a lot more trial by media now, if that makes sense. And everyone has an opinion. And, I mean, we see it a lot, particularly in football here. You know, we've seen, you know, England crashed out of the of the um, the Euros in the final and the three black players who missed their penalties got absolutely, well, it was disgusting, vilified on social. And I think it brings with it an added level of pressure that wasn't there then. And I think a lot of people who are great in sport in particular, they never chose to be famous. They had a gift. 
and they worked that gift. But actually, you know, I mean, you speak to a lot of them and they say, you know, when I spoke to Roger Black, for example, and he just said, I wanted to be a good runner. I wanted to be the best that I could be. The other stuff was almost a distraction. And, and I think so what I think they're finding now is that there is a bigger expectation on them that they will share every aspect of themselves and their lives. Whereas I think the athletes from the eighties and the nineties, they were kind of given that opportunity just to concentrate on their sport. You know, they, they, they had less of less expectation. They just turn up at the Olympics or they turn up at the, world championships or, or, or whichever and do their thing they did their talking literally on in the court on the pitch or whatever and I think now there's much more pressure from what they're telling me that they have to present an image as much as they have to present themselves as sports people I have to take one step back quickly though because uh, Sam we're gonna have to find you after the podcast because you you broke the rule and you you said naughties again and you know that's a. I know. There's a. That's a. It's that's, that word has been blacklisted on the podcast. You're not allowed to use it anymore. But <laughs> I, I'm aware. I'm aware. I just wanted to keep going. I wanted some consistency. I wanted to not be different. But he I did see. He definitely purposely snuck that in for sure, as if we wouldn't notice. <laughs> I saw you both smirking, and I was like, "No, the show must go on. Yeah. Here we go." <laughs> I have, you know, I think. And, and, and sometimes I think this can be a slight misrepresentation, but sometimes when you look at very successful athletes, there is a constant, there's a one mindset that they seem to have. I mean, particularly if you look in the U.S., it was kind of revealed a bit in The Last Dance, the, the documentary about the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan. You saw how obvious it was that he always had this chip on his shoulder. No matter how much he achieved, there was he was very reliant on the fact that someone out there was not believing in him. I think you see it with Tom Brady, who is still fueled by the fact that six quarterbacks were drafted you know, ahead of him in the NFL draft, even though he's gone on to be the most successful quarterback you know, in, in history. How much, when you're then comparing, say, that, do you, did you, have you noticed that that's something that you've seen with the athletes that you've spoken to? And then how can you compare that sort of to someone being successful within the business world, where that might be a little bit, you know, if you've made $100 million and you've built a huge enterprise, how, do you, how can you keep believing that someone out there still doubts my abilities I have to say of all the people that I've interviewed and I might just be lucky I haven't seen a lot of chips on shoulders if I'm honest um, I think so many of them were grateful for their success they've been appreciative of it and actually if anybody has you know as I said I gave the Martin O'Fire example if anyone has doubted them, it's just made them want to prove themselves more. And as opposed to it being a negative, you know, that they still feel that there's something that left that they haven't achieved. Um, what was very interesting when I spoke to Derek Redmond and, and the story with him was in 1992 at Barcelona, his hamstring went in the semi-finals of the 400 meters hurdles and he was nailed on for gold and it's a very famous if, if you look it up it, it still makes me cry just watching it and I know that sounds terrible even now his dad came onto the track and helped him finish the race because it was hugely important and he said to me he said 110 million people 
have watched the worst moment in my life. And he said, you know, Obama name-checked him in a speech. And he said, but actually, he's been able to turn that worst experience in, into something positive and build himself around it. And I think a lot of the people, it's more about proving something to themselves. So when we spoke to Sally Gunnell, she's obviously a successful Olympian. And for her, she said, I never felt I was good enough. I was never confident in who I was. And so it wasn't a question of proving something to anyone else. It was a question of proving it to herself, if that makes sense. And so I don't know whether that's a generational thing. I don't know whether I've just been quite fortunate in the people that I've interviewed, but there seems to be more about proving to themselves than it is to kind of having something they need to prove to, to, to an outer world, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I kind of, I think this is a good point too. I want to go touch on something you said very in the beginning uh, with the growth mindset. Um, and you go through this a lot on your, your podcast, um, the growth mindset versus the fixed. Um, and maybe you could explain that to the, to the listeners as to what the difference is and, and kind of how athletes can use that to kind of achieve higher levels. Sure. Well, a, a fixed mindset essentially means that you're basically you've you've you're in the lottery of life, so your skills, your ability are fixed. There's nothing you can do to change it. You've either got it or you haven't, and it doesn't matter how hard you work. You've just you've just won the lucky lottery if you're successful. Whereas a growth mindset is all about whether you believing that, yes, you have to have some kind of talent, some kind of ability, but with hard work, with dedication, you can change where you are from. So you can move yourself from a lower position to a higher position by putting in the hard yards. And one of the things that we wanted to, to explore, if you like, is that how, many of, how much of what they've achieved is nature how much is it nurture and how much is really about the absolute hard work and the application of what they've done. Yeah. And that kind of reminds me of um, another podcast of the entrepreneurs with, I think it's how I built this. Um, he used to ask the entrepreneurs every time, how much is luck and how much is hard work? And they would always say there is some luck involved, you know, that I got to this point or to that point, but if it weren't for me persevering, putting in the hard work, I never would have been able to kind of use that luck to my advantage to grow and to build and things like that. And it's, it's a very similar idea. And I, I really like that idea that, you know, you're not fixed in either the yes or no, that you can have some level and then build on that level to achieve. So it's, it's, it was really nice because I've, in the few podcasts I listened to, you know, you kind of touched that with all of the athletes and it's, it's great to hear them say that as well, that, yeah, I was really talented, but at the same time I put in a tremendous amount of work. And even when I was injured, those were kind of, overcoming those obstacles and, and, and those setbacks are what really set me apart from other athletes that kind of just gave up or, or called it quits. Well, if you look at Johnny Nelson, the boxer, I mean, he was the WBO cruiserweight champion. He defended his title against 13 different fighters, but his amateur record was atrocious. His words, not mine. <laughs> he, you know, he only won like three out of 18 fights. But it was the effort that he put in the gym. It was the fact that he had a mentor. It was the fact that he believed in himself 
that meant his professional career was so successful. And I think there's a lot of people, it's like, it's it's not, I remember there's a, there's a quote, isn't there, in the Rocky movies, and it's one of my favourites. It's not how hard you get hit, it's how many times you get up. And I'm sure I've paraphrased that really badly. But the bottom line of it is, it's it's about that keeping on, keeping on, if that makes sense. And so many sports stars, and, and particularly we see that a lot in, in British football, is you'll have a lot of really, really talented players, but it's the ones that keep up the practice, keep up the training, keep up the, the healthy habits. And yes, there's a degree of luck if you get scouted by the right person, absolutely. But, you know, you look at someone like a Jamie Vardy, he, he won the premiership with Leicester, but he was started off in, in Fleetwood, which is like pretty much as low a division as you can possibly get. And, and you know, the fact that he kept on going, kept on persevering and kept working his way up was was due to something inside him as much as his ability on the on the field. Yeah, the, the one that stuck out to me, as I think, was the Roger Black interview where he said he was he was had broke his foot and was injured for over two years and then came back. And to think someone whose life is running to not be able to run for two years with a broken foot and then come back and still compete at the absolute highest level is is a huge testament to kind of pushing forward and never giving up. And that was that to me was just astonishing when I heard that. And I think I think all of them have had something. I mean, when Chris Akabusi talked, he talked about the fact that he'd been in foster care from the ages of four to twelve, he and his brother, and I hadn't known a lot of this about him, even though he he's a friend of my uncle's, and he said he got to a stage where he could have joined the army and gone for athletics, or he could have ended up homeless on the street. And it's about the choices that you make. It's about, you know, this is your destiny. You know, your path isn't fixed. You know, it's how much do you want it? How much do you want your life to be different? How much do you want to be still on the rostrum with a, with a medal around your neck? You know, how many cups, how many trophies? When, I, when we spoke to Paul Parker, and he used to play for Man United, and he was saying that as a small child... He had to take, at eight years old, through London, he had to take two buses by himself to get to training. But that's how much he wanted it. And I think there's so many people now, and it, we almost have this kind of like what I call McDonald's attitude to life, this fast food attitude to life. And it's like, we expect our success to be instant. We expect everything to be like really immediate. And, you know, a testament of that is Daly's, British record has stood since 1984 in decathlon and that's insane isn't it I mean when you think about that when you think about records that are being changed all the all the time and it's because actually you've got to really want it to to train yourself at 10 events and to be the best in the world at 10 events so it's a real commitment one thing I'd be interested in, because obviously you said that the intent of the podcast was in particular to sort of speak to younger people and act as a sort of source of inspiration for them. Have you found that regardless of the guest that they're able to relate to the story or is it, for example, easier for them when it is a sport, when it's an athlete, just because in, in many ways it seems 
whilst you, it, you know, there's no way I'm going to go out and win the Olympics tomorrow, but I might at least have had the experience of playing sport and kind of can really have that direct relation to that struggle versus trying to compare with someone who's built a, a business empire that seems much more foreign. Have you found that that doesn't really matter or, or, or are there particular types of people for who, where the young people are able to relate much more easily? I think we've had a mixture. What I've been really inspired by myself personally is that every single guest has taught me something and I'm not at school by, by a long chance. And I think so many of the guests have been, you just think, oh, that's really clever or that's really smart or that's a real nugget. Certain people I think have resonated. So for example, we had um, a lady called Gemma Oten on the podcast and she is a soap actress and, and quite a successful one. And the way she talked about overcoming her eating disorder for a lot of people was really, you know, right now where body image is such a big thing for young people, it was really, really inspiring. Um, when people listened to, um, I had a couple of the guys, Jamie, York and Dylan Denicha. Dylan's parents came into the UK with nothing. They were refugees on a boat and they literally their lives were changed by moving to the UK. And with Jamie, he lost his dad at 13 and it was how that evolved him as a business person. So I think there's a lot of relatable stuff. I think some of the guests, you know, when you look at it and I looked at Neville, for example, it's like I look at Neville and I think if I had dyslexia or I had ADHD or I had some kind of learning challenge at school, I could say, look, my life, my life can mount to something. I can do something because look at this guy. He's such a great inspiration. Um, and I think sometimes with the sports, yes, there's a lot of resonance with the sport. But, you know, not all of us are going to be able to run as fast as Donovan Bailey. And so sometimes it feels just that little bit out, out of reach, if that makes sense, even though the story is brilliant and his philosophy for success is so interesting. You've alluded now twice to sort of a familial connection or just th perhaps through your, yourself to now a couple of, the, of your guests to, to these Olympians. What is that? Is that just through family friends or is it more through your own or your family's in, sort of involvement in sport? Well, I, ironically, um, my uncle was was is actually not was he is daily thompson okay so, <laughs> so that explains that one, <laughs> that's great really, you know, that's the, the, no, that's the great. connection um and so you know it was hugely inspiring as a child I, I was a very lucky girl i had two amazing male role models in my life i had my my grandpa who had fought in World War Two in Burma. And it, it's really hard to imagine this because, you know, my, my granddad was North London, born and bred, and he'd never been outside of the UK. And all of a sudden, his country's asking him to enlist in World War Two, And he and his friends, they, they go to the, the office together. They get put in the same troop. And the next thing, he's in the Burmese jungle. You know, I mean, this is like... 
I can't imagine now being 19 or 20 and, and being in that position. And uh, I remember grandpa saying to me that um, he, somewhere along his journey, and he was away for five years, there was a paperwork mix up and my grandpa was transferred to a different troop. And at the time he was pretty hacked off, I'll be honest. And he later found out his original troop had all been ambushed and killed. And this paperwork mix-up saved his life. So somebody in Whitehall had made an error and it had saved his life. And I remember when he came back, I remember saying, Grandpa, Grandpa, what happened next? You know, was there counselling? Was there this? Was there that? And he went, Hayley, and please excuse the word, we bloody got on with it, H. We bloody got on with it. And um, my grandpa's rules for life were kind of my guiding principles. He had three core rules. It was the first one is live every day as your best day for the people that didn't come home. And, and he was really strong on that. You know, there's something good about every day, you know, and, and make the most of it. And his second one was have an attitude of gratitude. And, and literally everything that happens to you, you don't know if it's for your good or for your bad. And sometimes you can look at a situation like the paperwork and you think, oh, this is terrible. This is shocking. But actually, there's some real positive at the back end that you haven't yet seen. So just go, thank you for that. And the third one has caused me the most pain, I must admit. My granddad was Tottenham born and bred and uh, he said to me that I could support any football team I liked as long as it was Tottenham Hotspur and that probably has caused me the most pain in my life. <laughs> so I had this role model of this amazing man who'd fought in Burma and you know had come out of it with this was still such a great attitude and then on the other side of the family I've got an uncle who becomes a double Olympic champion from a council estate in southwest London. You know, how can that not affect you, your mindset in some positive way? Eh? So I guess for listeners, that's that the lesson to take from that is if you're one of your grandparents has three rules for life, you only ever listen to two of them. <laughs> um, I still love Tottenham Hotspur, but sometimes it's <laughs> Watch. <laughs> it, it could be worse. I'm a I'm a Blackburn Rovers supporter, so I, th I think I can I can definitely relate to having a painful experience as a supporter. <laughs> then, so obviously with with him being your uncle, did you see a different side of him in in interviewing him? Did that kind of change? Was there anything that came out of that process that was maybe you hadn't been aware of, or it sort of made you think about things that? You know, I think of my own family, some of whom have achieved things, some haven't, but I kind of, the family relationship kind of, you almost don't see them as, at times, as kind of real people. They kind of exist in, within this bubble where you don't think about every aspect of their life and, and the, th the things they've had to do. Was that, a, was that a, a different experience for you to actually sit down and kind of really speak about those topics? I think because he doesn't, He's never been a show-off. He's very been confident in his success. But he's just the, my uncle, if that makes sense. And 
it's only when I say to other people who he is that they're like, oh my goodness, he's a legend, he's this, he's that. Oh, I remember having that silly game on the, is it the, Deca the Daily's Decathlon game on the computer that, you know, I used to play that all the time. And, oh, I remember when he was whistling on the podium, or I remember this, I remember that. And you're like, I just remember he was my uncle and he was on telly and he was winning stuff. And interviewing him, what you see is what you get. So there was not, there was some stuff. I think I think how he coped with the discus in 1984 at, in LA was really interesting. But what I've actually found out, I found out more about him from some of my other guests, ironically, and they talked about how he supported them in their careers and you know their biggest. Um, their first biggest excitement was the fact that he knew who they were and he invited them to train with him and he was so generous in that side of his time that and that was something I hadn't realized so I've actually got a deeper knowledge of of him and what a great guy he is from some of my other interviewees if that makes sense yeah and then having him as your uncle, did that mean you kind of grew up a big fan of athletics and track and field and the Olympics? Because you know, I noticed a lot of your guests are Olympians and specifically in track and field. So was that like a big sport that you were always watching, always interested in? Well, it's very interesting because um, Uncle Daly is my dad's side, but my grandma on my mum's side, she uh, was a coach at Enfield Harriers, which is an athletics club. So we always watched athletics with her anyway. So it was a thing that we did in our family. And, you know, there's certain sports that you grow up with is, you know, for us, it was football, rugby, athletics, and boxing. And it was just, but, but I think there was, you know, I think because I've seen what it takes to be an Olympian, there's something about me that feels that that's something very, very special. Not that, don't get me wrong, not that anybody else's sporting achievements aren't, but actually what it takes to be the best at a specific discipline like that, when it's kind of quite an individual sport, if that makes sense. You're not surrounded by a team. And um, I remember my uncle said that he had the chance to be a footballer. And he could have been a footballer or he could have been an athlete. And at the time, you know, it was kind of like, oh, what shall I do? But... The reality of it is, he said to me, he said, I can score three goals, the other team scores four, I'm a loser. Whereas athletics, it's all about me. How, how I, whether I succeed or fail is down to my own endeavor. Yeah, and, and I think for your podcast, especially the fact that a lot of Olympians, the monetary aspect isn't as great as if you were a professional football or a rugby player. So it is more about pushing yourself and driving and wanting to be the best, not just because you're going to make millions and millions of dollars, but because you just want to be the single best in your discipline and get on that stage and prove yourself in that one event on that one day, you know, in LA or Atlanta or London, things like that. So I think that's actually a great aspect um, of, of interviewing Olympians is because you know, they're, they're not in it for the money as much as a lot of other athletes. And not that that's a bad thing, but, you, you know, it's one less motivation that they have to still kind of push through and, 
sacrifice a lot of their life to be the very best. I, th I think that's really fair, Frank, actually, because, you know, so you look at somebody who's dedicated their life to that discipline. You know, people look at somebody like Usain Bolt and say, look, he's become famous in under 10 seconds. Well, they, they discount the 20 years of hard work and training and discipline and dedication that it took to get that 10 seconds or under 10 seconds in his case of, of success. Yeah, 100%. I also think too, in terms of how the world assesses your own success, very different experience. I think if you compare it to most professional sports where you have this ability to, to fail perhaps in big moments, like say with the England football team failing, you know, losing in the, in the final of the Euros, you, they can still point to other successes that have been very prominent throughout their individual or team careers. Whereas for an Olympian, for the most, as far as the larger public is concerned, you only kind of appear every four years. Everything else you're doing is, you know, people don't take that much. I mean, obviously there are people who do, but the larger public, it's, you're kind of invisible until the Olympics come around. And then how successful you are gets judged by this one performance that you get to put in. And you could have been, you know, breaking world records and having, you know, three years and 11 months of incredible performances. And on that day, you don't deliver. And as far as everyone's concerned, who's tuned in, you're a failure. I think that's very different to the experience that, you know, athletes will have in other sports. Even if you can get to the final of Wimbledon and lose, I think people process that very differently to being in the 100 meter final and, and, you know, finishing fifth when they expected you to win. Yeah. I think, I think that's very true, Edward. I think, you know, it's one of those things. It's like you're putting everything on the line for that single moment. And I think with a lot of sports, you know, with cricket, you have various tests and various different things. And if you're having a bad day, the chances are your other teammates are having a good day. And so you're kind of judged as a collective, if that makes sense. And it's the, it's the same with football. You know, in our Premier League, you've got, x amount of games a season if you have one bad game it, it it's not the end of the world because you can always it make up your performance and i think with something like this it's it's four years of blood sweat and tears have gone into one performance and you know you've got one chance of getting it right and and that that's it isn't it yeah it's, it's crazy to think about i mean you touch on like the premier league there might be the best central midfielder, but then the fourth or fifth best central midfielder is still extremely famous, you know, extremely well-known, highly successful. But then you go to track and you think of who finished fourth or fifth in the hundred meter dash in the last Olympics. And almost no one's going to know unless you're very, very dedicated to that sport. And that person dedicated probably 20 years of their life to get to that event and just maybe it didn't click or maybe it did. It was their best and it still wasn't enough. And, you know, they're not in it for the money. They're not going to get remembered. But it's 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 a very different, uh, I think, like mindset to be in that sort of sport versus in the, the major sports. Yeah, definitely. I also think it's quite unique in the sense that I'm never going to be the fourth best in the world at anything. And, <laughs> you know, there's no moment in my life where I'm going to be able to confidently say I'm the fourth best at a particular thing at a particular moment in time. Whereas, you know, they're... But then we'll treat people who will... Not, not with that fixed mindset. That's true. It's a very... Yeah. Not with that fixed mindset. Have we not learned anything? <laughs> it's true. That's true. I'll take that back. 
one day I will be the fourth best at something, even if it's just there. positive thinking. But there we go. Yeah, that, that's the right thing. That's the right attitude. But you know, it is interesting. We'll see someone finish fourth in the Olympics, and they get they get categorized as a failure. But fundamentally, the, the sort of class that they've put themselves into is extraordinary. And and even I mean, even just making an making an Olympics you've already put yourself into the elite of the elite making an Olympic final puts you in the, you know, the very elite, you know, the eighth best at doing what you do. And yet we will watch someone, you know, you'll tune in and I'm guilty of this as well. You'll tune in and watch someone and they finish eighth and you go, oh, well, that's not very good. Now I take it every day of the week. But isn't that strange, Edward, when you look at something like the Ballon d'Or and you're looking at the footballers and, Ronaldo's seventh best in the world, according to the Ballon d'Or scores. Who would say that Ronaldo isn't one of the greatest footballers of all time? It'd be very hard to not to not classify him in the same category as Messi and Pele and things like this. And yet, that's how it's seen. It's it, the, the sports are judged so differently. Yeah, and and also. Uh, it's it's amazing when we talk about these kind of differences between say winning a gold medal coming fourth coming eighth because the margins there are so minimal as well like the difference between first and eighth in a hundred meter race could be 0.7 seconds yeah and yet you're classified as a failure frank you can analyze the timings there if you want but the point is like you could lose the discus by two centimeters you could lose the javelin because you overstepped the mark by a centimetre. And the difference between success and failure in athletics, whereas football, you could lose 2-0, have a bad day, and everyone's like, okay, well, you know, next week we're still ahead in the league. Or, okay, there wasn't really fine margins there. They were better than us over a course of time. But with athletics and kind of track field events, it's amazing. You can lose by two centimetres, be called a failure. And, and as we've alluded to, you're not going to remember the appearances in like the Diamond League, for example, if you're not like a if you're like a kind of a random fan that kind of just watches the Olympics. So uh, very interesting how some of these people kind of keep their mindset going, knowing that you could lose by a centimeter once every four years. And yet you have the ability to keep coming back, keep training hard. So it's um, it's kind of inspiring, especially from all the people you've listed off as well that you've interviewed. Well, it's very interesting. Tammy Gray Thompson was really spoke to me a lot about this because one of the things that she said is that in 1996 in Atlanta in the Paralympian Games, she had four events. She got three silvers and a gold. And everyone was like, oh, she should have got four golds. But she did. She said to me, on the day, someone was just better than me. She said, do you know what it's like? It's just, you know... They were better than me. She, I mean, there's no excuses. There's no craziness. Anyway, she was on the plane back, and the PR person for the for for the Paralympics came up to her and said, um, "Oh, we've done a press release to announce your retirement when we go back into London." And she went, "What? I'm not retiring." And they said, "No, no. Um, well, you're clearly not as up to it as you were. So essentially, we're going to announce your retirement." And she said, no, you won't. She said, don't pick me if I'm not good enough to go to um, the 2000s. Where was it? Um, Beijing? Sydney. 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 Sydney, sorry. Sydney. No. She said, don't pick me. But I'd rather you didn't pick me. You're not telling me when I retire. And he said, I've printed out the press releases. She says, I don't care. Now, in 2000, she then went and won four golds. 
in the Paralympic Games. And she said, isn't it bad of me? She said, I got off the plane and I saw him and I had my medals around my neck and I wheeled over as quick as I could. I went, no, no, you know. And it's just that, it's that that ability to, to come back from, you know, let's be honest, I'd be really happy with the medals she hit in, in Atlanta, but the fact was other people around her had said to her, is that good enough? Are you are you on a decline? And, and she'd just come back and went, ha ha, I'll show you. Yeah, I think we're particularly, and we're guilty of that in all sports. I know sometimes I look at people who are coming towards the, the sort of back end of their careers in sports and you you kind of think, well, they should they should call it a day. They're not as good as they used to be. And A, I mean, that's obviously the, entirely their own decision to make. But there is that, it, it's weird. I would never want anyone doing it in my career where they go, well, five years ago, you were a bit quicker at doing certain things. So <laughs> it's time time to pack it in. But, you know, and they're still maybe, you know, still performing at what is, you know, an elite level, just maybe not quite as elite as it once was. It's it, And it's also an interesting thing because, depending on what your expectations were. So in the, in the instance with her, had the ex, had you got, had going to the Olympics and winning a gold and three silvers been an incredible achievement, then no one's talking about retirement. But because you've set the expectations as being so incredibly high, then even though it's an incredible thing to have done, it's somehow still disappointing. Yeah, Eddie, I always think about that when athletes get heckled. I always wonder if they would love to return the favor and just go to a person's work that's been heckling them and just stand right behind them. And if they send a bad email, just, just boo them and make fun of them for the email they sent. Like it, it had to be so, it would be so satisfying if you were an athlete, I'm sure, to just tell, give them a taste of their own medicine. But um, so, so the question I kind of wanted to ask was, when you do your interviews, how much of the stories do you already know? And how much of the stories are you completely surprised and in awe of when you, when you hear kind of, them tell their story well I have to tell you I deliberately don't find out too much about them before the interview which sounds counterintuitive to somebody who's interviewing people I find out the top line and I find out the basics but I don't want to guide them down a path where every other interview interviewer has taken them um, I'd rather that we had just a chance to chat and then we'll go in the direction that they want to go in. And one of my interviewees, he turned around and he said, I've told nobody what I've just told you. I said, not even my family. And I said, well, you better hurry up because this podcast is coming out in two weeks. And and I think that sometimes it's it's healthier that way because everyone thinks they know about certain sports personalities or business people or actors or actresses and it's sometimes nice just to let them lead the conversation a little bit because often then they they tell you a lot more than they had anticipated and that's always a good thing oh no i mean i think we in many ways take a similar approach and i think our lack of professionalism, not accusing you of being left, but our, our lack of professionalism at times means that we then approach questions, sort of an, a, a, a story from a different angle than someone else will have done, which is, is you know, sort of what you're also saying. If, if you do research too much, you end up just asking people the same questions they've answered a hundred times and them telling the same popular story that they've told on every interview beforehand. So I think there's definitely some value in knowing a little bit less at times, which is also an interesting 
thing to kind of take away from maybe I'll try and apply that to all of my work. Just be less prepared, <laughs> less prepared in general and just think hey, I'm, I'm thinking outside the box because I'm not prepared for anything. It's the same, isn't it? Because everyone thinks, uh, you know, I, I remember we, I interviewed a certain person and I won't name their name and, and they said, oh, are you going to talk to me about the race thing? And I went, no, why should I? Is that what you were hoping for? And he goes, oh, no. He said, I'm dead grateful that you're not fixing it around that. And I went, I'm interviewing you because you were really, really good at what you did. <laughs> I, the the, the colour of your skin or your ethnic background doesn't really bother me. I'm just more interested in about who you are and how you've achieved it than to try and get down some kind of bandwagon or try and overthink it, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Well, f Frank, Sam, I'll do my usual thing, I guess, because we're approaching that sort of meaningful hour mark on our interview. Do you have any final questions? I know, Sam, you love it when I put you on the spot and see if see what you can come up oh, with. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm a horrible pressure person, Haley. Usually I'll just panic and not say anything, but I do have one. Um, is there anyone you would love to interview? Anyone specific? I guess, you know, it could oh, be... Sam, it could come be, on. It could be <laughs> the business world. It could be, you know, the sporting world, as we've discussed. Is there anyone kind of, or, or maybe give you a sneak peek for an interview coming up maybe, but um, is there anyone you would love to interview? Do you know, I, I, I have a lot of people that I would really, really love to interview. So if I could give you maybe five as opposed to one, that Please would do. be. <laughs> so the first one would be Idris Elba. And A, I love the fact of where he's come from, but I also love the fact that he's so multidisciplined in what he can do. And I like the fact that he's still as down to earth, that he still is trying to fight gun crime. He's still very involved with young people in London. And, and I just think he's a really interesting interviewee of, of how he's conquered Hollywood. Um, the second one would be Tyson Fury. Um, he fascinates me, um, as a boxer and as a person and the fact that he's overcome so much with his mental health. I just, I just think it would be a really interesting thing because particularly nowadays where so many young people have got some challenges with their, their, their mental health, um, well, you might be able to get his brother now that he's dropped out of his recent fight because of his injury <laughs> I, as I said there's lots of people that, that just fascinate me just genuinely fascinate me um, I would love to they'd be the two probably the, the two main ones I think the biggest challenge I have is to get women on my podcast and I don't really understand that I don't know whether that's just the connections that I have or whatever I'd love to interview also maybe a great manager like a, a Pep Guardiola or a Klopp or a Conte or a Mourinho just to understand that kind of winner's mindset. But to be fair, everyone 
everyone that I've really wanted that I've asked has said yes so far. So I've been very lucky. You know, I've had a few a few no's, but then that's to be expected, I guess. I mean, I, I think a lot of people just get so many approaches, don't they? Yeah, I know. I think it's always a challenge. We, you know, we approach a lot of people and, and you know that they're being hounded at times for, and, and in particular, because sometimes you reach out to people because you're reminded of them because they're in the news or they've got a book coming out or something. So a lot of the times you are approaching them when they are busy. Uh, and also I, th- I, I always feel bad when we do that because you also, it feels as if, oh, now we remember you exist because you've just been in a news story for a week. So we've tried to get in touch with you to see if you want to come on. We wouldn't have done this a month ago when no one was really talking about you, even though your career was just as impressive a month ago as it is right now. But no, it's a challenge. That was a good list of people though, certainly. And I agree with you, Tyson Fury, I find him to be, you know, a, quite a fascinating character and you know, he has obviously has the controversial aspects of, of things that he's said and done, um, and then the very positive work that he's done with mental health. But yeah, he would definitely be. I mean, you could just create an anti BBC Sports Personality of the Year award and see if you get him on to speak, just to come on just to talk about how much he hates that. Oh, bless him! Yeah, I ha- I hear that, but I I quite like that attitude. To be honest, it's like. He, he wants to be known as a boxer, not a celebrity. And I think, as I said, that seemed to be very common with a lot of the sports people that I've interviewed. It's the, you know, I remember Andrew Strauss saying that um, his late wife had said, what really matters is not the people yelling for you on the pitch. It's not the celebrity and the media and all the stuff. It's actually your family, your friends and the people that love you. And everything else is just fluff and I think I think it's you know I think that's kind of an important thing that he brought to the to to the table absolutely Frank it sounds like maybe your final question was stolen by Sam but do you have another one to sign off with stolen stolen implies that I didn't have it (laughs) (laughs) all right how's that (laughs) Uh, um, I guess mine then would be has there been one take home message that you've really taken to heart that you've heard and, but you know, what, what was been said to you that's affected you the most and kind of guided you, I guess, in, in your future and, and, and working on the podcast and things like that. In terms of what's inspired me from the podcast or. From the, from talking to the people you've had interviewed is, has there been one thing that really stuck? I, I mean, you've given, you know, 10 to 20 examples of great things that people have said, but has there been one for you personally that just really, really stuck out and and kind of inspired you? I think it's got to be Janice, Sylvia Brock, the artist. And that, you know, to have that attitude of just sheer joy and despite your circumstances and, and to look at the positives in absolutely everything. You know, there's been a lot of people who've given me great stuff on growth mindset, on resilience, but to actually feel her her genuine gratitude in every situation that she faced was, was really, it was just a reminder that too often I haven't shown that. And, and, and that's something that I would like to kind of improve in my own life. Well, I think that's a good 
a good message to end on. Some certainly something that all of the listeners can do. Haley, thank you so much for joining us. I guess give you also a last opportunity to just promote a the podcast where people can find it and also if there's social media or anything where they can interact with with you or the podcast itself. Sure. Well, the podcast is called Snippet and it's on all the platforms, Spotify, Apple, etc. Um, you'll know it because there's a big red lips and the words in nice and black lettering and obviously all my guests are on there. Um, you can find me on all LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Hayley Meeks. And I also have my own site, hayleymeeks.co.uk. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No, no worries. Great.